Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Yeah, just the two of us this time. There's no just Adam, there's the no two guest. Of us. Yeah. Yeah, we can make it if we try, can't we, Beth? We can, Marky Marky Moo. Um, it's a big one this week. So, shall we just get cracking? Fuck it, let's go. So this week, I'm going to be telling you about a huge case, and I'm going to be telling you a little bit about this case, and I'm being really honest, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this case, because it spans a vast area geographically, spans a number of decades, I'm not even going to attempt to include all the information about this case. I'm going to basically give you a rundown of the case as a whole, and then some cutaways to specific crimes that occurred. A bit different for you? No, I think that's fair, and we, we've done that before, and we are only uh, we only have like limited time. So I think sometimes with a massive case, it's just our take on it, and we can't uh, we can't delve into every aspect of it. So occasionally we we do do that, and I think it's um it's the right thing to do. Otherwise, it'd be a six part episode, wouldn't it? And it's going to be a two part episode as it is. So this is going to be the story of the Golden State Killer, so Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. I have to say here, I'm really embarrassed to say that I know like nothing about this. Oh, that's amazing because I really find this case so fascinating. I'll love to teach you about it, if that makes sense. Honestly, and as a true crime podcaster, I really am embarrassed to say that I don't know anything about it because it's a huge case and everybody knows about it. And I always just nod along and go, yeah, yeah. Uh, So this is going to be fascinating uh, for for me uh, in particular. So between 1973 and 1986, D'Angelo terrorised California with a campaign of burglary, rape and murder. He eventually pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances, so that includes murder committed during burglaries and rapes, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping. And on the 21st of August 2020, D'Angelo received multiple consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And so it's believed that he is actually responsible for at least 13 murders, 50 rapes and more than 120 burglaries. And the fact that you don't know much about this case really, really helps because I was already thinking this episode is going to be quite authentic to how we used to chat and our realisation that we were both so interested in true crime. This is me telling you the bits about this huge case that I personally find the most fascinating and terrifying and scary and sharing information. And I feel like that's kind of how we got talking, wasn't it? Oh, like that, honestly, that was 100% what we used to do um, when we go out, when we were at work, uh, on lunch breaks, when we were making a round of drinks, whatever. We would, I mean, it's not all we talked about true crime. We talked about lots of other stuff too, didn't we? But uh, we talked a lot about true crime. And, and you're absolutely right. We would almost, the, the whole show, really, how it started is exactly essentially a recording of what we would chat about and how we would talk about crime so um it's exciting to to go back to our roots and to have it less formal and um and to not be diving into every aspect of this something that's really stuck with me this case is how cruel this man was so how he loved to taunt his victims he reveled in the power that he held over people through fear And one of the things that really stuck with me is he would ring his past victims later just to taunt them over the phone. And that's 
that's obviously a huge power trip as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? That I've still got this this element of power and control over your life. Yeah. And I just want to say, and I will shut up and let you kind of fully get cracking <laughs> on onto it. But I just want to say that I'm so it's so interesting that you've picked up on that element of cruelty. And as I say, I don't know anything about this case, but we've certainly seen cases before where victims have been tortured. Um, so uh, those two um, foreign exchange students in London, I always talk about it. And, um, you know, like I said, their flat resembled an abattoir by the time their killer had finished with them. And it was a prolonged attack where they'd been tied up and tortured for hours and hours. And there was a, a huge element of cruelty in that. And I think that's um, it's something we don't see that often in all the murders that we cover. We don't see, we see cruelty because it's cruel to murder someone. But we don't see cruelty in its true sense in the run up to somebody's life coming to an end uh, as a result of murder. So it, it's an interesting subject. And it, it's what sets apart these kind of uber killers to the the regular killers that we generally encounter and it also sets apart the mad or bad um debate as well these are just evil people no doubt about it so i've kind of split the episode today into part a and part b so in part a i'm going to tell you a bit about d'angelo himself and then look at his reign of terror and some of the specific victims in their stories and then in part b we're going to look at how he was caught and his trial and then again hear from a couple of his victims. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born on November the 8th, 1945 in New York. He had two sisters and a younger brother, and without wanting to justify his actions, there were a lot of things that happened to him in his formative years. So he apparently witnessed the rape of his sister, he apparently suffered abuse, and it was later reported that in his teenage years, D'Angelo tortured and killed animals and committed burglaries. But what is really interesting with this, and indeed the most terrifying bit perhaps, is that no one suspected D'Angelo of his crimes. He is the epitome of neighbours being shocked when they find out that the nice old man next door isn't so innocent after all. That reminds, and that, yeah, that, that is always the, the massive concern, isn't it? Because then you start thinking, well, this could be my boss or my friend or my brother-in-law or my neighbour. And it always remind these kind of things always remind me of when I lived next door to, uh, he was like an old age pensioner. You'll know this, Beth, and I'm sure I've mentioned it once before on this show. And he was a crack addict mm-hmm. and he was regularly smoking crack in his flat and it was a nice flat and, um, and yeah, I was right next door to him and his dealers turned up and it was all kicking off. And yeah, he was like this kind of um, very vulnerable, disabled 70 year old man that was regularly smoking crack. And I was like, what the fuck? And mm. I confronted him. And I was just like, what? I can't believe this. Like, what the hell is going on? And you, I'd never have suspected it in a million years. Mm. And I know it's slightly different to him being a murderer, but it just goes to show that you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah. In 1964, D'Angelo joined the United States Navy and he served as a damage controlman during the Vietnam War for about 22 months. On his return home, he brought back a National Defence Service Medal, a Vietnam Service Medal and a Vietnam Campaign Medal. So he was decorated. And in 1968, he began his studies, eventually earning a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And he then took police training and in 1973 began a 32-week police internship at the police department in Roseville, Sacramento. And then also in 1973, he married a woman called Sharon Marie Huddle. 
So D'Angelo worked as a police officer in a place called Exeter from 1973 to 1976. And then he worked for the Auburn Police Department from 1976 to 1979. He was let go from this particular job after he was charged with stealing a hammer and dog repellent from a drugstore. But right up until this, he seemed to be an upstanding guy. He called law enforcement his career. He said his only job was to serve the community. He said that he believed without law and order, there is no freedom. He was married. The couple were raising a family. Not his wife, nor his children. Nobody thought he was anything other than this perfect father. Now, I know I've said he seemed to be an upstanding citizen. There were indeed a a few red flags. Although we're talking about the 60s and 70s and This doesn't mean I'm saying it's okay. In today's world, he wouldn't get away with this at all. But I feel like it was definitely a little bit more common what I'm going to go on to explain. So in 1970, he had been engaged to a woman called Bonnie and she broke off their engagement when he became manipulative and abusive. He even threatened her with a gun trying to force her to marry him. And when he was arrested in 1979 and he was fired and he was sentenced to six months of probation, D'Angelo threatened to kill the chief of police and allegedly stalked the chief's house. <laughs> so, I mean, those are those are red flags. Yeah. Even even uh, even back then, when you could kind yeah. of go around threatening to kill people without there being consequences. I think maybe the um, spousal the, abuse side of things, unfortunately, massively, was a lot more common. So, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, the way women were treated back then, most certainly. Um, the the other red flags to me are, are the fact that he was uh, partaking in the Vietnam War. And um, for 22 months and some of the some of the things that he would have seen could have resulted in an an element of trauma, which could have manifested in in peculiar ways in later life. So um, and this kind of stealing this dog repellent and whatever else it was from his drugstore. That's weird because, you know, he's only what did he steal? What was it? A A hammer hammer and and dog dog repellent. repellent. Right. So. You know, you're talking like $10 worth of stuff, even in today's money. So that wasn't about um, stealing because out of necessity. That was about doing it to kind of, I don't know, get a bus from it mm-hmm. or get one over on the, the person who owned the store. It was almost like a bit of a power trip. So even though that's a really insignificant theft, that to me is also quite significant. His motivations around that, I, I think, would be really interesting for, for an expert to look at. And then as the years went by, there was nothing much else that worried his wife or their children. They certainly didn't suspect that this family man was anything to do with these escalating crimes. There were burglaries, rapes and murders happening, but they just didn't think that this man that they knew would have been the person that committed these over the following decade or so. And in 1980, D'Angelo and Sharon purchased a house in a place called Citrus Heights, and they eventually had three daughters. The couple separated in 1991, And they just lived separately. It was only in July 2018 after D'Angelo's arrest that Huddle filed for divorce and that was finalised. So even after they were separated, for whatever reason they decided to separate, it wasn't that she even suspected him. She didn't know until he was arrested. And and wasn't desperate to move on because she'd not filed for divorce for 27 years. Yeah. So frustratingly, it was D'Angelo's background in criminal justice, his knowledge of police investigation procedures, and like you alluded to, his experiences in Vietnam, which aided not only his skills as a serial killer, but also helped him to stay under the radar for as long as he did. It's a, it's a perfect storm of of different elements making up uh, a guy that can act with impunity, really, for a period of time, isn't it? Yeah. 
The first grouping of serial crimes took place in Visalia between 1973 and 1976. The press dubbed the burglar as the Visalia Ransacker. This was a burglar whose MO consisted of breaking into houses, rifling through or vandalising the owner's possessions, and scattering women's underwear. The Ransacker would steal a range of low-value items and often ignored banknotes or money or higher-valued items that were left in plain sight. The stolen items usually included piggy banks. In fact, the first crime specifically attributed to the Vesalia Ransacker was of a piggy bank. And he'd also arrange or display items in the house, enjoyed stealing foreign or historic coins, blue chip stamps and personal items such as one single earring or a cufflink or rings, medallions. And I think like you said with the hammer and dog repellent, this is just the thrill and the buzz yeah. of stealing this isn't because he needs to live and messing with someone's head as well taking one yeah. one earring when he could have taken both and and leaving one is a reminder of of, of what's happened to them that they've been robbed multiple same day ransackings were common as well so the biggest of all was on the 30th of november 1974 he hit 12 properties in one day that is going some 12 properties in one day i couldn't do two could you, Bethan? I don't think I could be bothered. What's your to record? Do any. Three, isn't it? What's that? Three. Three before I got too drunk. <laughs> yeah. <I had> to stop. <laughs> and this does sound a bit lighthearted, a bit low key, to be honest with you, because it's generally smaller items. And whilst it is horrific, you know, this person's been in your home, it's, it's not that ridiculous except you then find out that he's also stole weapons so he stole six weapons and various types of ammunition and actually over the course of 20 months he hit around 120 homes and it was absolutely terrifying for the victims some of whom were awakened by an intruder in their home or people who came home to find their house was wide open raided and vandalized and I think sometimes it is easy to almost think that things are lighthearted. It's really not. Oh, no, not at all. And we, I know we talked about burglary in the extreme in that episode earlier on in season seven. Uh, so I think it was before Christmas. And we talked about that gang that had come over to the UK and carried out, I think, three burglaries at high profile um, homes. And we had Tamara Eccleston in a victim impact statement talking about the impact it had had on her and how after all that time, so it happened in 2019, even to this day, she struggles with being at home on her own and with sudden noises and just immediately goes to someone's in my house. Yeah. D'Angelo's MO throughout this time was to wear gloves because he knew about fingerprints to leave multiple escape routes available to himself, like he'd leave the back door and the windows open in case he That's needed clever. to flee. He'd climb fences, so his route to arrive wouldn't be obvious either. He would move the removed window screens onto the beds or into the bedrooms, and then he'd also place warning items, such as dishes or bottles, against doors and on door handles as an early warning system for himself. There were no fingerprints left at any of the homes, and actually, the statute of limitations had expired for the burglaries by the time D'Angelo went to trial. So he's not been convicted of any of these burglaries. Um, but there was one other crime at this time, which kind of hints at his escalation and at what was to come. On September the 11th, 1975, D'Angelo broke into the home of Claude Snelling, a 45-year-old journalism professor. Claude lived with his wife and their 16-year-old daughter, 
and he was described as a good man. He was incredibly well loved. He was respected by everyone who knew him. He was dedicated. He dedicated his life to his family, to his students and his church. People who worked with him have said he was a fair man and he never raised his voice. A few months previously, in February, Claude had discovered a prowler outside his daughter Beth's bedroom window and had chased him away. And just to remind you, his daughter's 16, this guy. Um, On September the 10th, 1975, the family headed to bed like any other night. And then it was two o'clock in the morning when Beth was woken by a terrifying sight. Brandishing a gun, threatening her to stay quiet, was a man wearing a ski mask. He told her that he was taking her with him and if she made any noise, he would kill her. So Claude woke up and basically heard what was going on. He confronted D'Angelo, but D'Angelo shot Claude twice before he ran away. Claude made his way back into the house to his wife. 16-year-old Beth had been saved, but Claude very sadly died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And what a what a guy from what you've you've painted and he's died saving his 16-year-old daughter from what would have been a horrendous kidnap, uh, sexual assault and no doubt murder. Yeah. And so Beth did say that she felt guilt for many years, wondering if there was anything she could have done to prevent her dad's death. But she later said, um, it wasn't until I became a parent myself that I realised there was nothing I could have said that would have kept my dad from trying to save me. My mum always said that it wouldn't have mattered if there were 20 men out there with guns. That wouldn't have stopped him. And I thought, you know what, that is so true. And I'm glad she's got that peace at and, last. Yeah, that, that closure around her... Mm-hmm. her um yeah, whether she was kind of guilty of anything. Of course she wasn't, but we all think that, don't we, when uh, we've been involved in things like that. So I'm really pleased, like you say, that she's managed to to reframe that into the correct way. Yeah. So D'Angelo was formally charged in August 2018 with the first degree murder of Claude Snelling in 1975, and he did plead guilty to this in 2020. So, following the murder, police ramped up patrols. Nighttime stakeouts were set up near houses that the ransacker had previously prowled around. More money was put into the hunt for him, but these burglaries continued. And the ransacker wasn't afraid to use a gun. Again, it wasn't like this one time had really put him off. In December of that year, when a masked man entered the backyard of a house near to where the ransacker had been reported to frequent, and with a detective on a stakeout inside the garage, the detective tried to detain the suspect. The suspect shrieked, removed his mask, and then feigned surrender after the officer fired a warning shot, but then pulled a gun and fired at the officer and fled. Um, I think he like hit the officer in the cheek or the bullet whizzed past his cheek. It was really terrifying for the officer. The officers nearby rushed to the scene, but they were unable to catch the ransacker. However, this had actually spooked him. They, he dropped some of his loot. They had his torch. They had now shoe tracks to record his evidence. And they also had some of his loot, so blue chip stamps and a sock full of coins. However, that was the end of the Vesalia ransacker. D'Angelo just moved on. Mm. What um what kind of makes me laugh in and what was you know would have been horrible for that officer but uh, the fact that D'Angelo's like shrieks and then I the can, word shrieked I wondered if you'd pick up on that because that is how it's described in the officer's testimony just, and it's hilarious I can just <laughs> picture him just squealing ripping that mask off and going yeah I'm sorry like it was me and then you know uh, obviously going the other way and shooting this officer which is horrendous but yeah this yeah. shrieking did make me uh, smile. So D'Angelo then moved to the Sacramento area in 1976 and it was here that there was this new crime spree with a different nickname in the press. So, And also at this time the crimes really escalated. 
Between 1976 and 1979, the East Area Rapist was at large. Stalking middle-class neighbourhoods at night for one-storey homes that were usually near a school, a creek, a trail or some open space that would offer easy escape, D'Angelo would scope out his future victims. Most victims had seen or heard a prowler on their property before they were attacked and the police soon realised that the East Area Rapist had been conducting extensive reconnaissance trips before selecting which home to attack. Sometimes he even entered the homes of future victims to unlock the windows in preparation, unload his guns, plant things to use as ligatures for himself and he would even telephone future potential victims, sometimes for months in advance, and learn their daily routines. That is so calculated. So he would he would go into their homes uh, weeks, months before he was planning or planning to actually attack them and he'd plant stuff so it was all there ready. Isn't that dis- That's just so terrifying and disgusting? Yeah, I think terrifying is literally the only word for it, yeah. Yeah. The usual routine for these crimes was to break in through a window or a sliding glass door at night and then awaken the sleeping occupants with a torch and threatening them with a gun. He would then bind his victim and rape her, and then spend time in the house ransacking the closets and the drawers. Sometimes he would eat and drink while he's there, and then return and rape her again. One victim, called Jane Carson Sandler, was raped in 1976. Her three-year-old son was in the house at the time. Knife-wielding D'Angelo bound her, blindfolded her and gagged her, and then did the same to her son. And she later told the court... I was frozen in fear beyond description, but my attention was not on the rape. It was fully on, where did you put my son when you removed him from the bed? Where did you put him and what are you going to do with him? Which I just think is heartbreaking, isn't it? She has having this and she's also still got to think about her child and she's not the only one who would initially attack women if they if it was a woman alone or they had children in the house. I think that's just a mother's instincts kicking in, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, blindfolded, uh, yeah, just frozen in, in fear, knows what's happening, but is managing to think logically and think, where's my son? That's the most important thing right now. So Jane still to this day feels the after effects of the attack. She said seeing a ski mask or hearing someone yell, shut up, just causes her so much anxiety decades on. Understandable, really. Yeah, of course. So initially, D'Angelo targeted women who lived alone. So he attacked around 12 women, either alone or who lived with just their children. But when the media highlighted this, he then changed his tactics and began to specifically choose couples, a man and a woman at home in their house at night. And this was basically seen as a like, fuck you to everyone. The papers have said he was choosing, lo- choosing lone women because they were more helpless. Nope, I can attack where a man is too. And he was kind of like proving himself as it were. It does sound it, doesn't it? That That is a massive fuck you to the press. And it's like, actually, I'm not weak and I don't need to just target lone females or, or females with uh, a young child in the house. I'm happy to go in and attack and rape a woman in front of her husband, for example. Yeah. So he would force the woman to tie the man up while he's there threatening them with a gun or however he's threatening them. And then he would separate them. So he'd usually move the woman into the lounge while the man was tied up in bed. And then he would stack noisy items on top of the sheets that were over the man of the couple. So if he tried to move, he'd make a noise which would alert D'Angelo. And he'd tell the couple he would kill them both if he heard any noise from the man. One of the other twisted things that he would do, again, this has really stuck with me since I ever heard about this case, is he would pretend to leave and then the victims would be led there, silent, thinking, oh, okay, he's been gone for half an hour, an hour or whatever. They'd then think they were free of their ordeal and he'd leap out of the darkness and laugh at them and continue the attacks. 
this is honestly this is the stuff of nightmares and it's like a it horror go- movie isn't it it is like a horror movie that's exactly what it is and it, it goes back to what you said about that cruelty that real cruel streak in him and and that's that's what we're seeing here um letting them have that false sense of relief and then coming back and uh, and continuing yeah that's just um it's vital There are thought to have been approximately 30 male victims of this serial rapist who were tied up and threatened while their partners were sexually assaulted or raped. And whilst obviously they didn't suffer rape or rapes, but they were also absolutely traumatised too. It doesn't change anything about this case, but I do find it interesting that often the male victims and their trauma are very rarely mentioned or even discussed in the retelling of this case. Yeah, reminds me a little bit of um, the the Mandalay Bay massacre. And we um, we heard from a survivor from that mass shooting and her partner wasn't with her. She was shot in the face and she had to endure, you know, years of surgery and stuff. And um, her partner wasn't with her. He was at home doing something else. And he always, she said he really suffered uh, in the months and years following her attack because he wasn't with her and he felt that he should have been with her and, and therefore could have saved her somehow. So that always resonated with me and I think with these men not only have they actually been the victim too in in these awful attacks but they're going to have that awful feeling of I should have been able to do more to protect my girlfriend my wife whatever yeah and D'Angelo's impact continued long after the night of the attack so more than half of the couples attacked by D'Angelo either divorced or separated afterwards um and put down the trauma of not being able to to be able to cope with it yeah, you'll never get over it. It's a huge amount of trauma and it's going to manifest in all sorts of weird ways. So yeah, I'm not surprised by that. But it's sad, isn't it? A sad fact. Really sad. And D'Angelo's petty thefts kind of continued as well. So the East Area Rapist would also still steal personal objects and items of little value, on occasion cash and guns as well. And he arrived and left on foot by bike. Sometimes he'd steal a bike and then cycle along and then dump it. And he'd use parks, schoolyards, creek beds and other open spaces that kept him off those main roads. There are 50 incidents that are attributed to the East Area Rapist. And this list is just this horrific catalogue of violent attacks. Bob and Gay Hardwick are still married today. But in the spring of 1978, they were a young couple in their 20s, not yet married. They lived together in a small home and they were asleep together one night when they were awoken by a glaring light and realised there was a masked man inside their home. He threatened the couple with a gun and told them that he would kill Bob if Gay didn't tie him up. Bob later said, I thought about it many times, is there anything I could do? But I'd rather be alive today than dead. Gay tied Bob up and the East Area Rapist then stacked dishes on Bob's back and repeated his threats, saying he would kill them both if he heard those dishes moving. He then dragged Gay to the living room where he sexually assaulted her multiple times and for over two hours he would pretend to leave only to come back and keep them on edge. And Gay later told the court, he ate from my refrigerator, he drank two beers while I lay bound and blindfolded. He ransacked our home and in between he tormented me with threats of death. I'm speechless, I don't know what to yeah. say. It's. I think again it's this... Um, it's this going away repeatedly and coming back and, and letting the victims think that they're safe now and that they have this overwhelming sense of relief that he's gone and then he comes back and he does that multiple times. It's just this humongous power trip, as is, continuing to stay in the home and eat their food and drink their beers. Uh, it's, it's all this just humongous power trip. 
And it reminded me of um, the family that we looked at in Japan where the person who had murdered the entire family had then eaten and drank at the house. And we talked at the time about how that takes a really cold, callous sort of person to be hungry and to be able to eat after committing such a heinous crime. He's in the middle of it and he's still having a great old time drinking some beer and having some snacks. It's really, really scary. It, it did remind me of that one. It also reminded me of Andrew Cunanan, who was mm-hmm. um, the, the guy that murdered Gianni Versace, amongst others. And he did that. He yeah. um, Not with Gianni Versace, but with, with another of his victims. He stayed in the home and ate. And um, it's just a real disturbing element to, to any murder, I think. It, it tells you a lot about that person. So it is slightly uplifting a little bit of an uplift here, to realise that considering the statistics I mentioned earlier about couples splitting up due to their ordeals, Bob and Gay went on to be married and indeed still are married to this day. Bob later admitted he would feel so angry and helpless and he threw himself into his work and sports, he often let anger get the best of him. And he said, I was the same as any other man. Gay was the real, the real victim and I felt bad that I couldn't do anything about it. But then Gay threatened to leave Bob and the couple had to address this aftermath and the trauma of the attack. Gay said in court, I survived those repeated attacks, the hours of terror. However, our lives were never the same. And she said that she suffered decades of PTSD, nightmares, sleeplessness, social anxiety, flashbacks, inability to be alone. And even two decades after her ordeal, when she thought she was fully recovered, she had a horrific moment. So Bob had gone out of town, their four children, they'd all gone out and she was really looking forward to some alone time. But then she walked into the kitchen and saw some pieces of duct tape left on a counter and it gave her such horrific flashbacks that she fled in fear to her father's home and she spent the night in her childhood bed. And theirs is just one of so many horrific stories from this section of the Golden State Killer's timeline as the East Area Rapist. And his his escalation had only just begun. As with Claude Snelling, D'Angelo wasn't going to let people get in his way or stop him. And there were a further two murder victims in this time. On February the 2nd, 1978, Brian and Katie Maggiore, a husband and wife, were walking their dog in an area where five East Area rapist attacks had occurred and there was a confrontation in the street. So they fled and the suspicion, suspicion of the police is basically that they disturbed the attacker and they'd fled, but he chased them down and shot them to death. At the time, it was suspected that this was the East Area Rapist um, due to a number of factors. So his signature of a shoelace was there, it had been dropped nearby in the area, the fact that five other people had been hit there and that sort of thing. In 2020, it was confirmed and D'Angelo did admit to being guilty of their murders. Well, at least justice prevailed in the end, even though that would have clearly taken a long time. For me, like I mentioned at the beginning, one of the most chilling things that I always remember with this case, apart from, I think, the, the dishes being stacked on people really stuck with me is Mm. also D'Angelo his need for power and to terrify people years later near to Christmas in 1977 he rang one of his previous victims and she recognized his voice and on the call he said Merry Christmas it's me again this is honestly it is like some low budget horror film it just makes my blood run cold like I imagine watching this on a film and getting the chills and it happened to real people. It must have just absolutely ruined Christmas. She's trying to heal and move on from her ordeal, and she gets that. I, I think the the only answer for me, I'd have to move out of the country and move to Australia or something, and and start my whole life again. And you absolutely shouldn't have to do that. But mm. I think that's the only way that I would be able to 
um, feel an element of safety because otherwise he, he knows that she still lives there. He's got a phone number. He's still taunting her. He's still thinking about her. Um, so could he come back? I'd be constantly thinking. And that's obviously the whole point of him making that call is I, I'm still in control of you and um, I own you and I can come back and ruin your life at, yeah. at a moment's notice. Exactly. And in, I mean, in that call, he's hinting on January the 2nd, 1978, he phoned another woman. Now, this phone call was actually recorded and identified by the victim as the voice of her assailant. On this call, D'Angelo taunted her saying, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, bitch, 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 fucking whore. I mean, <laughs> what, wow. what What can you say? Yeah. What a fucking freak. And then after the murders of Brian and Katie, we move on to the next section of the case. The original Night Stalker period of this case took place between 1979 and 1986, with six attacks between 79 and 81, and then one final attack in 1986. After this, D'Angelo stopped. He did not strike again, not that we know of or that he's admitted to, or even suspected of. And the crimes were linked together with the name, the, the, the Night Stalker, sorry. So in the press, it was the Night Stalker. But then Richard Ramirez was given this moniker. So then D'Angelo was named the original Night Stalker instead. So that's why he's kind of the original. Again, it's like this this awful prequel that's, you know, gone out in, in theatres across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he literally stopped in 1986. Yeah. How bizarre is that? And that's we will move mad. on to that. Because it's a really interesting part of this. It's so bizarre. So only the couple in the first attack of this grouping on October the 1st, 1979 survived, having alerted neighbours and forcing their intruder to flee. So the couple heard the intruder muttering to himself that he was going to kill them. And they realised this wasn't, you know, just in inverted commas, a rape attack or anything like that. They knew they were in mortal danger. So they attempted to escape. The woman started screaming for help. An alarm was raised. And one of their neighbours was an FBI agent. So he pursued the intruder, although the intruder got away. Luckily, this couple survived. But the remaining victims of the original Night Stalker were not so lucky. A couple were killed on December the 30th. Robert Offerman and Deborah Alexandra Manning were found shot to dead. Robert Offerman's bindings were untied and the scene indicated that he had lunged at the attacker in an attempt to save their lives. On March the 13th, 1980, Charlene and Lyman Smith were found murdered in their Ventura home. Charlene had been raped and a log from the woodpile on the side of their house had been used to bludgeon the pair to death. In this case, and some of the East Area rapist attacks, an unusual diamond knot was used to bind the bindings on Charlene's wrists. So the murderer for the this attack and then for a short time was known in the media as the diamond knot killer so this is just another one of the names that kind of come under the golden state killer in in total god it's a real like um i can't think of the word but it's just so all-encompassing isn't it all Mm -hmm. these different periods uh where slightly different versions of his crimes were committed and then these different names that were attributed to him it's it really is no wonder this is a two-parter Yeah. On August the 19th, 1980, newlyweds of just three months, Keith Eli Harrington and Patrice Briscoe Harrington, were found bludgeoned to death in their home, and Patrice had also been raped. On February the 6th, 1981, Manuela Whitten was raped and murdered in her home, and her husband was in hospital. She was home alone at the time of the attack. 
So who knows if he'd been home, whether he would have been a victim as well. I'm not sure. And on July 27th, 1981, Cherie Domingo and Gregory Sanchez were attacked after D'Angelo entered the house through a small bathroom window. Cherie was raped and bludgeoned to death and Gregory had been shot and wounded in the cheek before he was bludgeoned to death with a garden tool. In 1982, another previous victim received a call from D'Angelo and she was at work at a Denny's restaurant. So investigator Paul Holes theorised that the attacker had been to the restaurant, had recognised her there and then decided to call up when she was on shift. And on the phone call, he threatened to rape her again. And nobody knows why, but there was a huge lull in D'Angelo's offending at this point. It appeared to be the end of the attacks. But then in 1986... 18-year-old Janelle Lisa Cruz was D'Angelo's final victim. The Cruz family had headed off to Mexico for a holiday, but Janelle had a new job, so she stayed home alone. On the night of the 4th of May 1986, she and a friend heard some strange noises outside, but they didn't see anything suspicious when they peered out into the darkness. And then they heard a noise from the garage, but again, they saw nothing suspicious. It was 10.45pm, so Janelle's friend headed home. The next day, at around five o'clock in the evening, a real estate agent who had planned to show the home to potential buyers found the teenager in her bed. She had been raped and bludgeoned to death, and the scene was one of a horrific attack. Police found blood on the kitchen floor, blood on the cabinets, blood on the wood floor by the front door, blood on the home's wood shutters, and at the head of Cruz's bed. Janelle's parents, who had left her alone for the first time ever to go on the holiday with the baby of the family were woken in the middle of the night with the news that their daughter had been killed and a post-mortem determined that she had been struck at the back of her head, her face had also been battered and she had taken a serious blow to her forehead. And that is the end of the case in relation to the crimes, although D'Angelo continued to call victims, which I just find so weird and fascinating that suddenly that's that. He has a bit of a lull, does one more murder and then that's that. I just want to know, I mean, do do we go on to that? Because I need to know, right? Because that is my, I, I get this, like, call continuing to phone victims. I kind of get that because um, that's a way that he can relive uh, those crimes in his own head and continue to exert control over those people. It's almost like, a, you know, the methadone to his heroin, you know. So I sort of understand that, but I don't understand how he can just all of a sudden stop with this behaviour. And actually, the, the final phone call was in 2001. They stopped as well. So the day after an article in the Sacramento Bee linked the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist, he rang a victim and said, remember when we played? Um, and then that was that. The investigation obviously continued, but it was the end of D'Angelo's offending. He carried on with his life and his wife and his children and his jobs. Soon grandchildren followed He was basically a standard neighbour in the community, albeit a slightly grumpy old man known to be meticulous about his lawn. Nobody could have guessed who they were living next to. So join us in part B to talk about how D'Angelo was caught and to hear about his trial. 